You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. Welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on Monday, February 12, 224. Reading the paper of yesterday, February 11th. Support for this reading comes from the Dupaco R.W. Hafer Foundation. We're Nancy and Myra. And here's our first story. Vanished Southwest Wisconsin Community Provided Haven for Black Americans by Eric Hogstrom, B-Town Township, Wisconsin. Names engraved on the stones in a small cemetery on a windy ridgetop in Southwest Wisconsin hint at a history hidden by the passage of time. One gravestone reads, Thomas Green, April 10, 1842, U.S. Colored Heavy Artillery. Another weathered stone bears this name and dates, Edward Shepard, 1850-1946. Barely legible engraved words provide a kind of census. Queen Richmond died December 31, 1893, age 85. The cemetery in Section 11 of B-Town Township in Grant County bears the name of the community it served, Pleasant Ridge. Located on the north side of Slabtown Road, about five miles southwest of Lancaster, the cemetery is the only remaining reminder of a once thriving community founded by freed black slaves and eventually boasting a church, a community hall, and an integrated school. It was one of the first black communities in the region, and I don't think a lot of people recognize it or know about it. These folks had a thriving, tight-knit farming community, said Winifred Wedfern, a history lecturer at University of Wisconsin-Platteville, who has researched Pleasant Ridge. There's this idea of things that are hidden in plain sight. Pleasant Ridge is like that. There's not much left to it. Pleasant Ridge was a dot on a map, but it was a dot rich in significance, a community that by its existence upends many modern misconceptions about rural life in the early decades of the tri-state area. The representation in the Midwest was a lot more diverse than a lot of people might think, Eugene Tesdale said. Tesdale, an associate professor of history at UW-Platteville, has extensively studied Pleasant Ridge and the community's founding in 1850, rise in the late 19th century, and eventual decline by the beginning of World War II. Teasdale said it's imperative that the community's story continues to be told. Black history is human history, and human history in the United States is American history, Tesdale said. Anthony Allen, president of the Dubuque branch of the NAACP, described the story of Pleasant Ridge as one of a black community's advancement cut short by pervasive conditions in the early 20th century, part of a history that he sees fading from modern consciousness. A New Life, a legal document housed at the Grant County Historical Society's Museum in Lancaster, is dated September 25, 1849, and was signed by a Justice of the Peace for Fouquier County, Virginia. Drawn up in pursuance of Virginia law, the document states that Charles Shepard, a dark mulatto man having two small scars just above the left eye, who was about 25 years old and stood 5 feet 8.5 inches, had been emancipated by the will of his deceased owner. 
The deceased owner's name was Sarah Edmonds, according to records from Wisconsin Historical Society. Newly freed, Shepard became the catalyst for the story of Pleasant Ridge. Charles and his wife, Carolyn Shepard, had left Virginia and they came to Grant County, Wisconsin, to Lancaster. Testell said Carolyn Shepard had been born free. She married Charles, he then got his freedom, and they came to strike out on a new life in Wisconsin. Grant County Historical Society records indicate that the Shepherds traveled to Wisconsin with a relative of Charles' former enslaver named William Horner. Tisdale said the reasons for the free three people coming to Wisconsin is not clear. It grew into a village. Black residents were not unique to the region that would become the tri-state area. Tisdale's research indicates that nearly 100 black people worked in the lead mines and smelters of southwest Wisconsin or in houses associated with miners. Between 1826 and 1842, many of these individuals were enslaved in a territory where slavery was illegal. Black Americans were some of the first people in Galena, Dubuque, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, Mineral Point, Wisconsin, Platteville, Potosi, and Cassville, Wisconsin, Tisdale said. Black people were some of the first non-native people in those communities. He also said many of the fledgling communities of what would become the tri-state area were founded around 1827. Not only were there enslaved blacks in many of those communities in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, but there were freed blacks. He knew about growing up in Hazel Green. It wasn't taught to us in school. After its founding, Pleasant Ridge offered a place of freedom for black residents. None of the folks at Pleasant Ridge were enslaved while they were there, Tisdale said. It was a free black farming community. He also said various black people associated with lead mining industry in the 1830s and 40s in what was then the territory of Wisconsin eventually would find their way to Pleasant Ridge. America Jenkins later became a free woman and worked as a nanny in Lancaster in the 1850s, Tisdale said. By the time she stopped working, she moved to Pleasant Ridge and was a respected matriarch of the community. Members of the Shepherd family served in segregated units in the Civil War in the Union Army. There was a tradition of military service in Pleasant Ridge dating to the Civil War. The returning veterans and their families began to grow and the community developed with that growth. By the 1870s, Pleasant Ridge had a free Methodist church and by the 1890s it had a school. That was an integrated school. Some sources suggest it was one of the first integrated schools east of the Mississippi. That fact is debatable, but it was an integrated school, so black and white students attended. A story of success. Pleasant Ridge residents established a cemetery in 1883, and a visitor walking among its grave markers will read names that personally personify the history of the community. I saw too many families broken up on the auction block, Tom Green said in 1938. A good strong man or woman would bring a thousand dollars each, while slave owners would often give away a mammy's children to get rid of them. Tisdale said that by the 1880s there were at least 10 free black families living in Pleasant Ridge. 
several members of that community left Southwest Wisconsin for higher education studies at historically black colleges and universities. One such resident was Dr. Howard Shepard. He went to Fisk University in Tennessee and became a dentist, Tisdale said. We see that part of the story of Pleasant Ridge is a story of success for many of these black families. We see resilience. The story of decline. Black residents of Pleasant Ridge owned about 700 acres of farmland in 1895. Women in the community formed a group called the Autumn Leaf Society in 1906. They organized dances, dinners, and an annual reunion barbecue. By the early years of the 20th century, however, Pleasant Ridge had already begun to decline. Black residents had continued the community's military traditions in World War I. Some of the youth, including members of both the Green and Shepherd families, joined the Army and were put in segregated units. These soldiers' post-war experiences contributed to the decline of their community. Like a lot of white servicemen, blacks returned from World War I and did not get the bonuses they were promised. This caused terrible economic stress. Also, black servicemen were promised that if they served, racial segregation would decrease and economic opportunity would increase. Neither of those were true. In 1919, there were acts of racial violence across the country which extended into the 1920s and beyond. At that point in time, African-American communities were being destroyed by hate. But there is one woman who preserved the area's history. She's a significant American. Her name was Olive Shepherd Green, and she went by Ollie. She was the last descendant of the Pleasant Ridge community to live there. She was born in the late 19th century and passed away in 1959. Green went by Mrs. Dick Lewis, her husband's name, when she was interviewed by the Telegraph Herald in 1958. The story traces Green's family history to 1863 Missouri, when her grandfather and other family members boarded a train and rode to Dunleith, Illinois, later known as East Dubuque. I still have the trunk that Grandfather Green brought with him on that trip, she told the Telegraph Herald in 1958. Years later, I was told that by the time they'd reached East Dubuque, all the clothes were stolen, leaving just an empty trunk to be toted first to Potosi and then Pleasant Ridge. Green told Herald she remembered relations between black residents and white neighbors as being friendly. Teasdale and Green's curating of the said that Green's curating of the history is now vanished community provides evidence that the tri-state area developed in diversity. Individuals who combined to create a black community made contributions that should reverberate throughout the decades. It can be problematic if we don't remember or care about communities like Pleasant Ridge because if we're not caring about diverse history, we're not getting the full picture. Redemption centers benefit from overhaul of Iowa Bottle Bill. Just over a year after a reform to Iowa's beverage container deposit system took effect, area redemption centers have enjoyed better profits, grown in number, and are busier than ever. 
Sarah Donath is the manager of Center Redemption in Dubuque, where Iowa residents can return cans and bottles emptied of their carbonated or alcoholic contents and redeem them for five cents of what they paid for each beverage. She said she has worked at Center Redemption for 10 years and that a reform passed by the Iowa legislature in 2022 has boosted business, big time. We're busier than ever, especially now that almost nowhere else has to take them, she said. We're getting through almost 350 customers a day. Before, 250 was about the average we would do. Under Iowa's bottle bill, consumers pay a five-cent deposit when they buy carbonated and alcoholic beverages, which they can get back if they return the containers to a redemption center or a store that is required to redeem them. The law passed in 2022 increased the rate paid to the redemption centers for processing the containers from one cent to three cents apiece. It also exempted stores from having to accept containers if they are in a county with at least 30,000 people and within 10 miles of a redemption center or a county with fewer than 30,000 people and within 15 miles of a redemption center. The law also exempted stores that prepare and serve food. With the reforms fully implemented, the already declining number of Dubuque grocery stores accepting cans for redemption dwindled to zero. And at Center Redemption, business promptly accelerated. On one day in March 2023, the square wheeled carts into which staff tossed sorted cans had packed the center's back storage area up to its doorways. Iowa's 2022 reform raised the rate paid to redemption centers for the first time since the state's bottle bill was created in the 1970s. Many redemption centers across the state had closed over the following decades because of that revenue stagnation. Since the reform, though, some new redemption centers have opened, including in Maquoketa and Camp Cascade. Faith Jones opened Punky's Cans to Cash in Maquoketa in December, meaning the town once again has two centers, Kansas City being the other, just as it did prior to 2020 when one closed. Jones previously worked at Kansas City and said the additional revenue from the reforms were key to her operation. I worked in a redemption when it was a penny a can, she said. Imagine working somewhere for 40 years and never getting a raise. I wouldn't have opened a redemption center for a penny a can. Jones said the business was booming at Punky's. We are so busy, she said. One day we got 21,000 cans. The next day it was 26,000. There are just so many cans out there. And we get people from Preston, Bellevue, Sprague,ville It's really all of the county. Jackson County definitely can handle two redemption centers. Dubuque's grocery stores are not required to accept cans under the reforms, but many Iowa stores do not, especially in rural areas far from the nearest redemption center. And yet, according to Iowa Representative Shannon Lundgren in Piasta, many stores stopped redeeming cans even if the new law still required them to. People in lots of places still don't have anywhere where they can take their cans or have to drive a long way to do so, she said. Like in Piasta, there's nowhere. The required stores have got to start taking those cans back. Lundgren, who chairs the Iowa House of Representatives Commerce Committee, negotiated the bottle bill reforms in 2022 and has introduced a new bill this session that would apply harsher fines for stores that do not redeem containers when they should. Lundgren is critical of the bottle bill generally, in part because so many containers go unredeemed. However, she said she did not know if her new bill had the momentum to pass the session. Iowa Representative Chuck Eisenhardt, Democrat of Dubuque, worked closely with Center Redemption in 2022 
and advocated for legislation that would bolster the businesses even more. Eisenhardt said he had heard no further news of bottle bill reforms, but that improvements likely are warranted. We have not received any reports regarding how the new system is performing. Probably we should, he wrote in a message to the Telegraph Herald. I continue to get complaints from consumers that they have to pay $5 everywhere, but only have one place in Dubuque to get their five cents back. Person who makes a difference. A Dubuque woman and a therapy dog, Brighton Days. Michelle Weber and Relay make regular visits to Hills and Dales to interact with the residents there. When Relay, a six-year-old Irish doodle, realizes he's getting close to Hills and Dales residential facility in Dubuque, he begins to bark with excitement. Relay is a therapy dog, and his owner, Michelle Weber, spends her weekends volunteering with him at Hills and Dales. She and the dog interact with and provide companionship to residents of nonprofit serving people with disabilities. Weber, an instructional coach at Jefferson Middle School, said she always wanted to have a therapy dog she could bring to school for students to interact with. When I got a puppy, my initial thought process was, oh, I'd love to train him to be a therapy dog and go to school someday, she said. But in order to maintain his certification, Relay needed to complete one volunteer activity every three months outside of his work at school. Weber knew a few Jefferson students who lived at Hills and Dales and enjoyed being around Relay. So she reached out to the organization about three years ago to inquire about volunteering. Julia Feltes, program coordinator at Hills and Dales, said when Weber inquired about volunteering with Relay, she knew the residents would benefit. At that time, residents were unable to do their normal activities due to COVID-19 pandemic. I met Michelle at the house and introduced Relay and her to the ladies, and the ladies just began to thrive, Felton said. She said Relay came into the residents' lives at the perfect time, helping them find laughter and joy during the pandemic. The visits quickly became more frequent, and now Weber and Relay visit residential facility twice a month in one of the nonprofit's residential homes weekly. If the two are on vacation or sick, residents ask when they're coming back, and they miss them. He has made a huge difference in their lives, bringing smiles to their faces. Just the emotional support and interaction that he has with these ladies has made a huge difference in their lives. Felty said residents can sit and pet Relay or give him commands and play with him. Relay knows when someone needs extra attention and divides his self accordingly. He'll go up and sniff or lick their hand, or we can move their hands so they can pet him. We try to be as interactive and engaging as we can when we go, Weber said. When she and Relay visit, it's all about the residents and what they want. Some are happy just to pet him, and others take turns playing with him, fetch or giving him commands. One of the best times of my week is to go and see the joy he's bringing people. We now turn to the opinion section of the Telegraph Herald, the editorial for Sunday. Stop Iowa push for partisan city school board races. A bad idea from last year has resurfaced again this session of the Iowa legislature. The measure calls for adding party labels to the ballot in both city and school board elections. 
the last thing we need in politics openly injected into races at those level levels. House Study Bill 633 was proposed by House Education Committee Chair Schuyler Wheeler, Republican from Hull, and Representative Brooke Bowden, Republican of Indianola, and Representative Dan Gelbach, Republican of Urbandale, voted to advance the bill, which is now eligible for consideration in the full committee. We urge lawmakers to ensure that bill moves no further. This bill is an attempt to solve what amounts to an imagined problem. Lawmakers in support point to, quote, party-affiliated people getting involved in local elections, according to Bowden. But that doesn't sound like anything new, and certainly doesn't merit a wholesale change to a system that has worked for decades. Recent local elections illustrate a system functioning well. In the fall 2021 City of Dubuque election, five residents ran for the mayoral position, four people ran for an at-large city council seat, two people vied for the Ward 3 seat, and one person ran for the Ward 1 seat. The interest was so high for the first two positions that the fields had to be narrowed in a primary election. Voters heading to the polls sized up the candidates on their specific merits and their stances on topics that matter to the Dubuqueers. Who would best lead the city? Where did candidates stand on major issues such as the future of Five Flag Center or the use of taxpayer money? Who felt like they would best serve as the voice of, of the people they represent? Also in the fall of 2021, seven people ran for three positions with four-year terms on the Dubuque Community School Board, while one person ran for a seat with a two-year term. Before casting their ballots, voting age residents of the school district evaluated the qualifications of those candidates, their visions for the district, and their opinions on major issues, such as future of the district's facilities and economic balance between schools. None of the residents voting for the city or school board races looked for or were influenced by a D or R behind any of the candidates' names. They cast their ballots based on their knowledge of the people and their positions, which is really how it should be. Dubuque voters in that fall 2021 election were fortunate to have a deep pool of local residents willing to serve their community in these elected positions. But even if there hadn't been nearly as many candidates, introducing partisanship into these races isn't the solution. In 2023, two Dubuque City Council members were unopposed in their bid for re-election. Under this new proposal, all candidates would be nominated through a primary election, the cost of which would fall to the city or the school district, also known as taxpayers. Why pay for a separate primary with candidates running unopposed? There's no reason to believe that adding political parties to the process is going to lead to more qualified candidates on ballots. There already are plenty of them in many local races. And in communities where candidates are tougher to drum up to hold election positions, it seems unlikely that political parties are going to solve that problem. About the only thing making these races partisan will accomplish is spreading the partisanship that too often divides our communities already. In fact, the Telegraph Herald editorial board continually has argued against political affiliations being part of the elections of county level positions, such as county attorney or supervisor. That argument is rooted in the same reasoning as our stance against extending partisanship to city and school board races. We want voters to choose the people they think are best suited for the jobs, rather than those who align with their party politics. And we want the people running for office to be focused on the nuances of the issues particular to their communities, not on aligning with the views of a particular party. 
So we call on our lawmakers to leave school board and city races alone and to look again at removing party politics from county-level races. Letters to the Editor Advocate for Alzheimer's Detection and Care Policies from Haley Kelleher, Dubuque. <clears throat> On Monday, February 12th, Alzheimer's Association advocates like myself will meet with policymakers at the Iowa State Capitol to share their stories and advance policies to improve early Alzheimer's detection, diagnosis, and care. This year, we are urging state legislators to fund a dementia service specialist program to help families facing Alzheimer's and dementia with care planning, access local support and resources, perform memory screening, and more. We are also asking legislators to require appropriate coverage for biomarker testing to support the early detection and diagnosis of Alzheimer's and dementia and remove barriers that prevent people living with dementia from benefiting from biomarker testing. As an active Alzheimer's Association volunteer, I am advocating for those priorities on February 12th because they will improve the lives of the 66,000 Iowans living with Alzheimer's and the 100,000 family members and friends providing care and help cut the overall cost of care for this devastating disease for families and the state. Join me on Monday, February 12th and raise your voice to help end Alzheimer's and dementia. Overhauling AEA would be disastrous. From Carmen Hernandez, Valentine Drive, Dubuque. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds proposed an overhaul of the state's area education agencies to better deliver services. She hired out-of-state consulting firm Guidehouse to assess the effectiveness of the AEAs. Guidehouse reported that Iowa's special education costs are higher than the national average due to inefficiencies. While few oppose reform to achieve better outcomes, the proposed reorganization of the AEAs and the services they provide could disrupt and delay delivery of all services, not just special ed, to privatize them. Privatization routinely fails to improve public services, often making them costlier. Such has been the result of the catastrophic privatization of Medicaid in Iowa that failed to deliver every promised improvement. Non-local, faraway administrators that rarely succeed in understanding local needs and circumstances make decisions from far away. Reynolds' AEA bill is being debated in the Senate Education Committee. Protect public education. Tell lawmakers to reject this dreadful legislation. Look at immigration issues with empathy. From William Fish of Dubuque. My letter is reply to a recent one from Mark Lansing, who is concerned about a crisis at our border, and he lists several statistics to support his point. First, Republicans in the Senate, with some Democrats, crafted legislation to address this issue, but the Republicans in the House are blocking the bill. Second, we have to ask ourselves if we lived in a country where we felt our children and family were not protected, wouldn't we do anything we could to protect them and find a better life for them? Third, when Jesus Christ said to feed the poor, he did not say that we are to decide which poor people we are to help. Christ came for all people everywhere. Mr. Lansing mentioned the possibility of terror groups forming from these people. 
Need I remind that the January 6, 2021 insurrection on our own capital was planned and perpetuated by our own United States citizens, and our then-president did nothing to prevent it or stop it. Many lives were changed, and a lot of blood was shed. You are listening to Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Your readers are Nancy and Myra. If you have any comments on this or any IRIS program, please call 243-6833 or toll-free at 877-404-4747. And don't forget, this and many other IRIS programs are available from our website at iowaradioreading.org. Now we return to the Telegraph Herald and to the obituaries. Obituaries. Randy Laufenberg, age 72, of Dubuque, completed his earthly journey suddenly on February 1st at Mercy Hospital while surrounded by his loving family. To honor his life, a private family celebration will be held at a later date. Randy was born October 11, 1951, in Dubuque, a son of Roy and Jeanette Pfeiffer Laufenberg. He was raised with a strong worth ethic in conjunction with an unwavering moral compass. His word was his bond, and he found great pride in living out his years as such. Randy was a proud graduate of Dubuque Senior High School and immediately signed up to honorably serve his country with the U.S. Army from 1970 to 73 during the Vietnam War. Upon returning home, Randy trained as a welder, which led him to employment at John Deere Dubuque Works. He also spent time employed at Yonkers and Key City Moving, then retired from MITM as a welder. Randy was blessed with a full life outside of work as well and found numerous ways to spend his free time. At the age of four, he discovered his love for motorcycles and spent countless hours throughout the years burning up miles and touring on his gold wing with his boys and best friend Terry. They made many trips to Colorado and were always up for local runs whenever possible. Randy was also a gifted musician who played guitar in several bands in high school and always treasured the garage band days. But for those who truly knew and loved him, his greatest joy was found in the title of Grandpa. He also had a love for canines and always had one by his side throughout the years. Those left behind to cherish the memory of Randy include his beautiful wife of 27 years, Victoria Vicki Johnson Laufenberg of Dubuque, his sons Jason and Kyle, both of Dubuque, his stepsons Ed Pickle, St. Donatus, and Tony Pickle, Piasta, his five adored grandchildren, his two sisters, Linda Scott of Dubuque, and Lori Lonsbach of Sherrill, Iowa, his six nieces and nephews, his 11 great nieces and nephews, his sister-in-law, Kathy Jager Dubuque, his brother-in-law, Ron Johnson of Dubuque, and his best friend, Terry Whiteman Dubuque, his ex-wife, Cindy Stewart of Dubuque, along with numerous extended family, friends, and neighbors. He was preceded in death by his parents, his mother and father-in-law, Bill and Beverly White, his brother-in-law, Jay Johnson, and his great-nephew, Bradley Smith. Randy E. Wold. Randy Edward Wold, 62, of Dubuque, passed away February 5th in Dubuque, 
Visitation will be from 3 to 6 p.m. on Tuesday, February 13th at Leonard Funeral and Crematory on Rockdale Road, where a prayer service will be held at 6 p.m. with Deacon Mike Ellis officiating. Randy was born on May 21, 1961 in Dubuque to Richard and Ed Richard Edward Wold and Karen Deany Wold. He graduated from Hempstead High School. For many years, he owned and operated vacation land boat sales. He was hardworking and well-known as ex excellent boat mechanic and overall handyman. He enjoyed camping and boating with his family on the Mississippi River. He was an outgoing individual who could and often would talk your ear off, and he will be greatly missed by those whose lives he touched. He is survived by his mother, Karen, his children, Ryan Wold, Hannah Wold, Nicholas Wold, and Alex Wold, his grandchildren, his siblings, Kim Chapman and Jason Wold, and former wife, Peggy Dodds-Wold. He was preceded in death by his father, Richard, and niece, Carrie Chapman. James DeMuth of Hazel Green, Wisconsin. Jim DeMuth, 78, of Hazel Green, passed away on Wednesday, February 7th at Park Place M Memory Care in Platteville, Wisconsin. A mass of Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Monday, February 12th at St. Francis de Sales Catholic Church in Hazel Green with Father Peter R. officiating. Burial with military honors accorded will be in the St. Francis de Sales Church Cemetery in Hazel Green. Family and friends may call on Sunday, February 11th from 1 to 5 at the Hodensfeld Funeral Home in Cremation Service in Cuba City. Also on Monday, February 12th from 9 to 10 at the Funeral Home. The Hodden Shield Funeral Home and Cremation Service is serving the family. Jim was born on April 21, 1945 to Clarence and Evelyn Wiederholt DeMuth on Hazel Green, Wisconsin. He was a graduate from Hazel Green High School. He was a U.S. Army veteran and served a tour in Vietnam in 1967. He married Diane Crapp on September 20, 1969 in Potosi, Wisconsin. Jim owned and operated Farmer's Feed Mill for many years, worked on his farm, and worked for the township of Hazel Green as a snowplow driver. Jim enjoyed gardening, fishing, drinking beer, loved cheering on the Chicago Bears, but most of all, he enjoyed spending time with his family and friends. Jim is survived by his loving wife of 54 years, Diane, three daughters, Tammy Miller of Waukee, Wisconsin, Angela Redfern of Hazel Green, and Sarah Craw of Hazel Green, six grandchildren, seven siblings, Mary Jane Bush, Richard, Demuth, Betty Dressen, Joyce Uthi, Eunice Oster, Thomas Demuth, and Joseph Demuth, along with many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents and two brothers-in-law, John Youth and Bill Oster. In lieu of plants and flowers, a James Jim Demuth Memorial Fund has been established. Mary Kay Hurst Mary Kay Pettigout Hurst, 80, of Asbury, formerly of East Dubuque, passed away at 11.32 Friday, February 2nd, at Mayo Clinic Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. Massive Christian burial will be at 11 a.m. on Monday, February 12th, at St. Mary's Church in East Dubuque. Burial will follow in the East Dubuque Cemetery. Family and friends may call from 9 
a.m. to 10.30 on February 12th at the Miller Funeral Home in East Dubuque, where the parish prayer service will be recited at 9.45. Mary Kay was born on March 4, 1943 in Dubuque, the daughter of Lawrence and Jean Fleege Pettigout. She was a graduate of East Dubuque High School, class of 1961. Mary Kay was united in marriage to James R. Jim Hurst on February 20, 1965 at St. Mary's Church in East Dubuque. Mary loved spending time with her grandchildren and grandpuppies. She enjoyed spending time with friends and neighbors during her visits to Arizona, but was always glad to get back home in the spring. Surviving is her husband Jim, two daughters, Julie Hurst of Peoria, Arizona, and Christy Dulsing of Hazel Green, five grandchildren, a brother, Dan Pettigout of East Dubuque, sister-in-law, Kathy Pettigout, and numerous nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her parents, two sons, Stephen and Tony Hurst, and two brothers, Pat and Mike Pettigout. Marion Malder. Mary and Claire Radloff Malder, 82, passed away on January 31st in Dubuque. Visitation will be held from 3 to 7 p.m. Monday, February 12th at the Egelhoff Secret and Casper Funeral Home in Dubuque, and from 9.30 to 10.45 a.m. Tuesday, February 13th at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 685 Fremont Avenue, Dubuque. Funeral service will immediately follow at 11 a.m. and will be live-streamed. Burial will be in Linwood Cemetery. Marion was born July 23, 1941, in Dubuque, the daughter of Marlo E. Radloff and Harry Augusta Frederick Radloff, both of Dubuque. Marion was raised in Dubuque and attended the University of Dubuque, majoring in music. She held many jobs throughout her life. Her first one was working at the Comet Drive-In as a cook, where she met her husband, Robert Donald Peanuts Malder. They married October 29, 1960. They raised eight wonderful children. Marion joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in May 1967 and has been an active member, serving up until the time of her passing. She has a strong testimony of the gospel. She has served as organist and a family history consultant for over 50 years. Marion was a people person, sharing her knowledge of Dubuque history through city bus tours, progressive dinners, and a tour guide at the Ham House Museum. She served two terms as president of the Dubuque County Genealogical Society and was a member for over 30 years. Those left to cherish her memory are her children, Robert Malder of Oakland, California, Linda Whites of Dubuque, Suzanne Dressler of Potosi, Wisconsin, Diane Onken of Dubuque, Shirley Tomlinson of North Liberty, Jason Malder of Dubuque, Joanne Lorda of Tracy, California, and John David Malder of Lehigh, Utah. Also, five grandchildren and one great-grandson, Logan Vandervelden of Platteville, Wisconsin. She was preceded in a death by her husband, Robert Donald Peanuts Malder, on March 29, 1994. Her parents, Marlo and Harry Radloff, and her grandmother, Louise Eady. In lieu of flowers, a Marion Malder Memorial Fund has been established. Marilyn A. Hughes, Marilyn Ann Hughes, 94, of Dubuque, passed away peacefully surrounded by family on Saturday, February 10th at Bethany Home. Visitation will be from 10 to 1045, Tuesday, February 13th at Church of the Nativity, 
on Alta Vista Street in Dubuque. Massive Christian burial will immediately follow at 11 a.m. Burial will be in the East Dubuque Cemetery. Marilyn was born on January 27, 1930, to Leo and Tilly Dorsch Craft in Waterloo. She was united in marriage to Alfred Hughes on February 9, 1952, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in East Dubuque. She led a faithful life by raising a family and her three children, Terence, Charles, and Susan. She was an enthusiastic volunteer for numerous community organizations, including Visiting Nurse Association and a sacristan and Eucharistic minister at Nativity Parish. Marilyn was an active volunteer for 40 years at Manor Care. She is survived by her children, Dr. Terence Hughes of Milwaukee, Charles Hughes of Newark, Delaware, and Susan Hughes of Elgin, Illinois. Also her grandchildren and her brother Charles Kraft of Kansas City, Missouri. She was preceded in death by her parents, her husband, siblings Leo Kraft, Robert Kraft, and Lorraine Batteron. In lieu of flowers, give a compliment like Marilyn always would and spread love and joy. Alberta M. Beck of Preston, Iowa, age 89, died on Thursday, February 8th. Visitation will held from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, February 14th at Carson Celebration of Life Center in Maquoketa. A Celebration of Life will be held at 11.30 a.m. Thursday, February 15th at First Lutheran Church in Maquoketa. Burial will be in Mount Hope Cemetery in Maquoketa. Deborah Morgan, 67, of Dubuque, died Friday, February 9th. Visitation will be held from noon to 1 p.m. Tuesday, February 13th at Hoffman Stether and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory, 3860 Asbury Road, where services will follow. Burial will be in Riverside, California National Cemetery. Mark O'Loughlin, Cincinnati, Sister Mark O'Loughlin, OP, died February 4th at St. Dominic Villa in Hazel Green. Her wake and funeral mass will take place Friday, February 16th at 10.30 a.m. in St. Dominic Villa Chapel. Miller Funeral Home in East Dubuque is in charge of arrangements. Cleotha, Sister Mark's baptismal name, was born August 7, 1927 to Daniel and Bertha Roberts O'Loughlin in Kankakee, Illinois. She made profession with the Dominican Sisters of Cincinnati in 1954 and received the religious name of Sister Mark. She received a BA in Speech and Drama from Rosary College, River Forest, and a Master's in Social Work from Loyola University of Chicago. Sister Mark's ministry has been dedicated to teaching, counseling, and social work. In Illinois, she taught at Trinity High School, River Forest, and Visitation High School, Chicago, where she also served as counselor. She also served as counselor at Visitation Grade School, Chicago, Saints Faith, Hope, and Charity, Winnetka, St. Viator, Arlington Heights, and Weber High School, Chicago. In Wisconsin, Sister Mark taught at Newman High School, Wausau. She also ministered in Wyoming and Washington, D.C. Sister Mark was preceded in death by her parents, a brother Daniel, a sister Marie Monahan. She is survived by her nephews and her Dominican sisters. Memorials may be made to the Sisters of Cincinnati, County Road Z in Cincinnati. Dale Hines. Dale Allen Hines, 65, of Dubuque, passed away unexpectedly on February 6th. Friends and family may visit from 3 to 6 p.m. on Thursday, February 15th at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 
2595 Rockdale Road. A funeral service will begin at 6 p.m. on Thursday at the funeral home with Deacon Jim Ketz officiating. Dale was born January 5, 1959 in Dubuque, the son of Rose Moss and Robert J. Hines. He graduated from Western Dubuque High School. Dale worked at Sid's Beverage on Dodge, Wareco on Romberg, Menards in Dubuque, and Happy Joe's on University, and in his later years helped at his cousin Frank's auto body shop. He loved attending stock car races in Farley, Dubuque, and Darlington. He enjoyed cheering Chase Elliott on when watching NASCAR. His favorite trips were the ones he took down to Florida to watch the Daytona 500. He was also a fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Chicago Cubs. Dale loved everyone. He made no hesitation in catching up with whoever he ran into. He kept in touch with many cousins and friends, and especially appreciated his good friend Buzz. Dale is survived by his parents, Rose Moss and Robert Hines, siblings Bob Hines, Lori Wortley, Jeff Hines, Lisa Kemp, and Jolene Nassman, 21 nieces and nephews, and 26 great nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his brother Dennis. Darwin W. Perry. Dwayne W. Perry, 86, of Worthington, died on Saturday, February 3rd. A private celebration of life will be held at a later date. Tri-State Cremation Center of East Dubuque is assisting the family. Patrick Nordhughes, Sr., 86, of Dubuque, died Wednesday, February 7th. No public visitation or service will be held. Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Dubuque is assisting the family. Tim A. Biederman. Tim A. Biederman, 68, of Dubuque, died on Wednesday, February 7th. Visitation will be held from 9 a.m. to noon on Saturday, February 17th at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory on Rockdale Road, where services will follow. James Sherbring of Colesburg, Iowa, 88 years old. Jim died on Friday, February 9th. Arrangements are pending. Clifton Murdoch Funeral Home of Earlville is assisting the family. Melvin Dittmar. Melvin Dittmar, 90, of Galena, died on Saturday, February 10th, 2024. Arrangements are pending at Furlong Funeral Home Chapel of Galena, who is assisting the family. We return now to some news and opinion and feature. High temperatures do not melt fun at popular ice theme fundraiser. The St. Mark Youth Enrichment Ice Golf Classic moves to land amid warm weather. From Grace Neeland in East Dubuque. As Barbie Miller and her friends gathered outside Midtown Marina on Saturday morning, the group tried their best to channel their inner warriors. The women were bundled in long dresses, furs, and personalized Viking helmets. Saturday marked the team's second year competing in the annual St. Mark Youth Enrichment Ice Golf Classic, and they came to win. Vikings have a very competitive spirit, Miller said, wearing a helmet with crocheted horns. And when we were thinking about it, the furs and the leathers that the Vikings wore would typically keep you warm. 
Miller and her friends were on one of 55 teams to register for the annual tournament, which raises money for St. Mark Youth Enrichment after school and summer programs. Several teams like Miller's dressed up in themed costumes. We have a lot of people who come every year, whether it is negative 20 degrees or 45, said Beth McGorry, St. Mark Director of Donor Relations. People come to have fun, but they're also here to support our mission. Typically, the fundraiser includes an 18-hole golf tournament on the frozen water at Midtown Marina. This year, however, warm temperature prevented the ice from forming, so the event was moved to solid ground for the first time in 15 years. In total, they set up 10 holes for teams to use and interspersed different games throughout to keep participants engaged. Teams stopped at each taste and twice by the end of the tournament, each vying for the bragging rights associated with first place. We held out for the ice and the cold to come, but it just didn't happen this year, Healer said. We get some competitive folks out for this, though, so we still wanted to give them something to work at, even without ice. The group was made up of teachers from Lincoln Elementary School in Dubuque who were familiar with St. Mark from the nonprofit's work with students at school. They have a program at Lincoln for our kids there, and you can see how important it is to them. We wanted to support that. From the lifestyle section, the good news can outweigh the bad by Katherine Fisher. Blame Pollyanna. Blame mom and dad's persistent positivity. Heck, blame Catholic lessons about St. Therese and her little ways to improve the world. Too often of late, nearly every conversation I hear begins with these awful times. Negatory, dear readers. I'm not blind to war, gun violence, racism, homelessness, immigration concerns, and the incivility of politics. But I also see our better angels, the millions of good folks actually doing something about it all. Witness our world. Border crossing, immigration laws, busloads of people, we hear it daily. But every week I go to Dubuque's Lantern Center and discover volunteers teaching English to immigrants from China, Afghanistan, Africa, Ukraine, Honduras, India, Mexico, and 19 more countries. Volunteers also assist with employment, housing, and medical needs, food, driver's license, and citizenship exams. Through their own industry, these newcomers become a vibrant part of the community, enriching it with the variety they bring. Whenever there's an opening or ribbon cutting, Chamber of Commerce ambassadors show up in their red coats. Volunteer Nelson admits, I want Dubuque to thrive. Cheering on new businesses is a small way to help make that happen. Like other yarn soup knitters, Maureen makes caps and mittens for school kids. She places extras in little free library boxes around town in case someone needs them. Recently, one of the group's sweaters donated to Wool Aid showed up on a little girl in Ukraine opened by the war. Even politics has its uplifters. Julie campaigns for candidates, delivers absentee ballots, and drives citizens to the polls. Her motivation? To engage with voters, encouraging them to learn more, think more deeply, and ultimately vote for public leaders who will right the wrongs in our world, helping us all to do better. Joan feeds the hungry by delivering casseroles made at Convivium. It's a program that quietly benefits many in the community, she reports. 
the rescue mission, opening doors, numerous churches, the food pantry, St. Vincent de Paul, and others also devote themselves to the most basic human needs, with thousands of volunteers assisting. Art helped create the Pacific Island Health Project to assist Marshall Islanders and Guatemalans locally. He also serves as a peace activist, actor in local plays, and musician. We live in an imperfect world, he says. It has a lot of beauty, but a lot of flaws. Some days I'm one of its flaws, and some days I can make it a little more beautiful. This newspaper, locally owned and managed, is part of an industry that too often focuses only on the negative, thus skewing our perspectives. Yet every week on the front page above the fold, the TH features couples celebrating long-term marriages. Every day there are articles about new businesses opening, school activities, arts and culture, and a lot of other life-giving community happenings alongside the necessary reporting of world events. Most of us will never end a war, save a life, eliminate poverty, or discover the cure for cancer. Other opportunities abound, however. The young dad juggling kids and groceries who could use a hand. The harried barista who would benefit from a pleasant exchange. The visitor needing directions, and organizations that require donations to benefit others. The few people I mention here are just a drop in the bucket. Thankfully, our tri-state area has thousands of everyday people making the world a better place. And that's good news. Another view, Airport Service Vital to Entire Tri-State Region by Clinton Langrick, Platteville, Wisconsin City Manager. How do you get there is a question that is becoming all too common. My name is Clinton Langrick and I'm honored to serve the City of Platteville as its City Manager. I've been in the position since May. In my short tenure, I can confidently say things are happening here. Platteville is a city like many in the region that has not only big dreamers, but is also blessed with big doers. Unfortunately, with these big ambitions comes the need for ample support. The lack of routine commercial air services provided by our region's economic hub is impacting all of us in the region. In our world of feeding the global economy and competing in an unanchored talent pool, it is more important than ever to have travel accessibility. From the perspective of Platteville, we want to maintain our local university, which U.S. News & World Report recently recognized as one of the top Midwest regional institutions. We need accessibility for prospective students, faculty, staff, and visiting families. We need accessibility for prospective physicians, local sales representatives, and traveling engineer technicians. This region has so much entertainment to offer. We need accessibility for tourists to travel to the riverfront, to the field of dreams, to explore the region's mining heritage, and to consider this region as their new home. With air service re-established, our local community would reap benefits to help us with all our other challenges. From us here in Platteville, we would like to applaud the many efforts by Dubuque's Mayor Brad Cavanaugh, the Dubuque City Council, City Manager, Airport Director, and all the supporting partners. Please keep up the good fight. Another view. Integrate DEI and B Actions to Promote Unity by Carla Anderson. This year for Black History Month, I thought it would be a good idea to focus on unity. The thought was that we needed unity before we can push for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. 
After a few conversations, I started rethinking. Nope, scratch that. Reverse. My reasons are as follows. DEI and B initiatives are by nature designed to foster unity. They aim to create environments where individuals from diverse backgrounds feel equally valued and included. By integrating these into the heart of Black History Month, we can promote unity. Unity does not necessarily have to come first in a chronological sense. It can be an ongoing process that develops alongside and through DEI and B efforts. Black History Month is a time to acknowledge and celebrate the contributions of African Americans to society, as well as to educate people about the struggles for racial justice and equality. Delaying these initiatives to after a perceived state of unity is reached might undermine the urgency of addressing systemic inequalities that are historically ingrained and still prevalent. Unity can be a nebulous concept, and striving for a uniform sense of it before acting on DEI and B could result in indefinite delays. It is possible, and perhaps more efficient, to work toward unity and diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging concurrently. Action items to promote unity can include open dialogues, shared cultural experiences, collaborative projects that also incorporate these goals. For example, hosting workshops on unconscious bias or celebrating the achievements of black individuals across different sectors both promote unity and further DEINB. Overall, while unity is an important goal, it should not be a precondition for these initiatives. Instead, Black History Month can be a platform to actively integrate these actions that promote unity. This multifaceted approach acknowledges the complexity of societal issues and recognizes that progress in one area can drive progress in another. It is through the very process of working toward diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging that we can forge a stronger sense of unity. It's up to us to keep pushing the needle forward until underserved communities can move past words on paper. That brings us to the end of today's reading of Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Monday, February 12, 2024. The reading was of yesterday's Sunday paper. We're your readers, Nancy and Myra. Support for this reading comes from the Dupaco R.W. Haver Foundation. The Telegraph Herald can be heard each weekday at 2 p.m. All programs heard on IRIS are intended solely for the blind and print handicapped. If you have any questions or comments on this or any IRIS program, please call our office toll-free at 877-404-4747. Thank you for listening.